Okay, why don't we stand and read church together? Second Peter three, verse seventeen or Second Peter chapter three, verse seventeen. It says there, uh, you therefore, beloved, knowing this beforehand, be on your guard so that you are not carried away by the error of unprincipled men and fall from your own steadfastness, but grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. To him be the glory, both now and to the day of eternity. Amen. Let's pray. Father, we are grateful for the morning we've had so far. Um, we are grateful for the way that Stephanie and Darcy uh, led our church in worship, and we're thankful for the, their gifts and graces and preparing our hearts to hear your message. And uh, the song was perfectly timed with Revelation, talking about uh, your coming back and the second coming. And here we're going to cover a bit of that today in our, in our study of Second Peter. We're grateful for your word and how it stood the test of time and has never let us down with truth. It's uh, a timeless book that... Um, is true for all stages of life and true for all times and periods of history. And Lord, uh, like Ecclesiastes said, nothing's new under the sun, so we can always learn today what was meant for even three, four thousand years ago. Uh, your relationship to mankind hasn't changed and the way you uh, justify and save us and deal with us, Lord, is always consistent. So we're thank you. we thank you for that and we're looking forward to learning from the book of Second Peter in the next uh, coming weeks. So we pray for a your spirit to fill this place and to fill me as I speak your word. In Christ's name, amen. Well, welcome everyone as we begin a new sermon series in the letter of Second Peter. The purpose of today's message is simply to give you an overview of the letter so you're familiar with some of its major themes and its content. Uh, my temptation will be to, every time we get to a, a portion of scripture that we look at or something that I really want to speak about is to like expand on those points right at that moment. But uh, I won't be able to do that to cover all three chapters. We'll do that uh, as the future unfolds. But today is simply to introduce you to the major ideas in the book. And uh, after preparing my sermon this week, uh, the timing of this letter, in terms of its message to the church, both to the leaders of the church and to the congregants of the church, the members, could not be more significant and more perfect, considering where we're at today. And I think as we spend the next few months together in this letter, you're going you're to see why this book is so relevant to us. So uh, let's, let's jump in. So who wrote it? Well, turn with me to chapter 1, verse 1. It reads there, Simon Peter, a bondservant and apostle of Jesus Christ. So based on the opening verse, it leaves no doubt that the author is Peter, uh, one of Jesus' disciples. But not, also, not only does he like, identify himself as an apostle, in which only one of Jesus' disciples later to, um, was actually uh, named Peter, uh, he also def defines himself as Simon Peter. So one clue, he defines himself as an apostle, and there's only 12 apostles, and, and uh, well, I guess they were initially called disciples, and then they became apostles, but only one of the apostles was actually named Peter. And uh, compared to like Judas, for example, there are two Judases. So it's a clue right away that he has to be talking about Simon Peter. But one of the keys here, too, is that he calls himself Simon Peter and not just Peter. 
Now, you remember the scene in John chapter 143. Um, Peter's introduced to Jesus for the first time, but his name is Simon at that moment. And his, and his Galilean name was Simon. And Peter, uh, Jesus makes this declaration. He says, You are Simon, the son of John. You shall be called Cephas, which is translated Peter. So it's a pretty strong clue that we're dealing with the same Peter here, the Simon Peter, by the fact that Jesus changed his name and spoke to him in that way in John. But other internal evidence within the letter show that Peter is really the author. There's a lot of phrases and, and references in the book that show that this person must have had a close connection to Jesus, um, such as an apostle or a disciple would have had. Now, for the sake of time and quick summary, I want to just show you these uh, parallels between what Jesus would have said and what Peter would have said in his letter and encourage you to look these up later. It'll be a fun Bible study for you. But I'll give you an example in chapter 2, verse 1. Look at chapter 2, verse 1. He says, But false prophets also arose among that, the people, just as there will also be false teachers among you who will secretly introduce destructive heresies. Well, in Mark 13, 22... Jesus is speaking to the disciples and he warns them about false teachers to come in the future. So there's a parallel. In chapter 2, verse 20, you'll read this with me here. It says that, For if after they have escaped the defilements of the world by the knowledge of the Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, they are again entangled in them and are overcome, the last state has become worse than the first state. Well, in Matthew 12, 45, Jesus speaks about the last state being worse than the first state. So in Peter's context, he's talking about false teachers who once followed Christ that now have rejected him. And he says it's better for now that they're getting back entangled in their, on their, new, on their old way of life again, it would have been better if they had not even known the way of salvation. And we're going to get into the reasons for why later. Um, but then Jesus in his context is speaking about demon possession. And it's about, remember the guy that was demon-possessed? He's exercised the demon, and he's clean now. He's got nothing, in, no spirit in him. And then he talks about the guy not being careful, and he invites demons back in his life, basically, and seven overtake him. And now he's in the worse state than he was in the original state. These are very, very specific words that are being used. How about in 310? You can turn and look at, with this thing there. He says, but the day of the Lord will come like a thief in which the heavens will pass away with a roar and the elements will be destroyed with intense heat. Well, Jesus also, in Matthew 24, 43, speaks about a thief in the night coming in reference to himself. So again, uh, it's pretty strong, or pretty uh, poignant language when he talks, Jesus talks about being a thief and then here Peter talks about Jesus being a thief. Now, the way in which they're both using the context is about how a thief comes. Not that he is a thief, but in the way in which he comes, which is he comes at a surprise. He comes when no one's expecting, and so on. One more phrase is found in chapter 1, verse 13. And this is a reference to the prediction of Peter's death. So you'll notice in 1.13, Peter declares this about himself. I consider it right as long as I am in this earthly dwelling to stir you up by way of reminder, knowing that the laying aside of my earthly dwelling is imminent. In English, uh, I'm in my earthly body, and I'm just reminding you that basically my time has come, and I'm going to die pretty quick here. Well, how would he know this? Well, remember, um, remember uh, the, the conversation that Jesus had with him in John 21, verse 18. He says this after he restores him back to ministry after his denial. 
He says, when you grow old, you will stretch out your hands and someone else will gird you and bring you where you do not wish to go, signifying but what kind of death he would glorify God. But probably the strongest internal evidence for Peter is chapter 1, verse 16. He says, For we did not clever, follow cleverly to devise tales when we made known to you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, but we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. Then he goes on to speak about the transfiguration, his experience on the holy mountain when Elijah was there, Moses was there, and then God's voice came out and says, You are my son in whom I am well pleased, and Jesus' face shone, and his garments turned white, and so on and so forth. But he, Peter says that we were eyewitnesses. Well, when you go back to the original um, place where this happened in Matthew 17, it says that James, John, and Peter went up on the mountain, only three. So that means that only James or John or Peter could be author of this book. But notice in chapter 1, verse 1, he says, Simon Peter, an apostle and bondservant of Jesus Christ. So again, pretty strong internal evidence. So who was it written to? Well, in one one it says, To those who preside, receive the faith of the same kind of ours, by the righteousness of our God and Savior Jesus Christ. So it's a pretty big description. To those who have received the same faith as ours. Um, so clearly the, the letter and, and the big picture is universal. Because you and I have received the same faith as Jesus Christ. So the letter is to us and the church over time. And while, I, while we'd all agree upon that, I think it's important to remember the context that Peter did have a target audience in mind. He wasn't writing to you and me originally. He was writing to someone else. Well, there's a clue in three one. He says, This is now, beloved, the second letter I am writing to you in which I'm stirring you up a way of reminder. Listen, church, this is the second letter I've written you. Well, if you remember the first letter of Peter we studied a few months ago, that was obviously the, the first letter. And uh, so that's pretty strong evidence that uh, this again is once again Peter. And the audience then, if, if you look at the context of chapter or First Peter, the audience back then were to, uh, it reads in 1, 1 and 1 Peter, to those who reside as aliens scattered throughout Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, Bithynia, who are chosen. And when you look on a map here, uh, you can see uh, where the Black Sea is, and you can see below it, you can see the, the districts of Bithynia, Cappadocia, and Pontus, and so on. So on. But what's interesting about this is that that's Asia Minor in the Bible or modern-day Turkey. Just to give you an understanding of where those churches were. And these would have been majority Gentile Christians. There would be perhaps some Jews in the congregation, but they're Gentiles, so they're primarily like you and, you and I. So when was it written? Well, no one knows for sure. But again, based on chapter 1, verse 13 and 14, knowing that Peter was near the end of his death, Church history believes that Peter died under the reign of Emperor Nero, the same as Paul. And so if you go by his dates of rule, the letter was probably written somewhere before AD 65. Just to give you a timing, Jesus was crucified in AD 33. So about 30 years after the crucifixion, Peter's coming to the end of his life. Not, in, not because of health issues, because he'd probably maximum only be like 50 or 60 years old. But he knows that his time's come because of Roman persecution and so on. So most importantly, why was it written? And this is going to be the meat of the sermon today. What were the major issues that Peter was seeking to address? Well, the first one was the warning against false teachers. Big issue in the book, a warning against false teachers. There's only three chapters in this book, 
but one third of the letter is dedicated to talking about the characteristics of false teachers threatening the church, the churches. That's chapter two, basically the entirety given to that topic. Now, there's a debate sometimes over whether these false teachers are already present in the church or whether they were coming in the future. My suggestion, based on study, is that they haven't arrived in the church yet. They were coming in advance, and Peter was simply giving them a heads up and preparing them for these false teachers so they would know what to look for when they showed up, and they would know how to accurately handle them and not get led astray by them when they came on the scene. So let's look at some of the characteristics of these false teachers. And again, you can uh, write these down if you choose and look at them later on your, on your own. But here's the characteristics of false teachers. The first thing was that they twisted the scriptures, including Paul's writings, and instead followed cleverly devised tales and destructive heresies. And in their destructive uh, heresies and cleverly devised tales, they actually spoke a lot about the, the person of Jesus Christ. And every single religion and every single cult and every single even Christian church, the debate is always over the nature of Jesus Christ. Years ago, uh, a guy gave me really good advice because I was, uh, you, well, those of you who know me, I get, ten, I get easily pulled into rabbit trails and I can't get out of a hole. And uh, so when I used to debate like cultish people all the time about all aspects of, of Christianity in comparison to their cults. And it never went anywhere. I just kept going in circles and circles, like talking about marriage, talking about money, talking about Jesus, talking about salvation. And one guy said to me, Andrew, just stop all of that. Just focus on the nature and the personhood of Jesus Christ in all your talks with anyone you speak to, and that'll help you out. And man, that was such good advice. Because if you sort out the nature of Jesus Christ in a person who's a non-Christian or an, or an occult, once they accept who he is according to the Bible, that will clear up the other issues that are, that are present about money and salvation and, and marriage and children and all sorts of things. Once you understand him, it changes things. So, I switched my evangelism to be all about the nature of Jesus Christ. That's good, because as a Christian, you just have to study that one aspect, and you'll, you'll go far. Um, so anyway, for what that's worth. That wasn't in my notes, but there you go. But here's what they had to say about Jesus Christ. Number one, they denied the lordship of Jesus Christ, chapter 2, verse 1. They mocked the second coming of Christ and the fact that he would come as a judge, chapter 3, verses 4 to 7. They despised authority, chapter 2, verse 10. They were arrogant and vain, chapter 2, verse 18. And they were known for their greed, chapter 2, 3, and 14. What's interesting about this being known for their greed is they didn't care about the spiritual health of the people they were ministering to. They cared about making a buck off of them. And that's interesting because remember in 1 Peter, chapter 5, verse 2, what, what, the, what the qualification of a shepherd was to be? One of the things that they were told is, not, is to exercise oversight over the church, not for sordid gain, but with eagerness. These men were doing the exact opposite. They also practiced and promoted immorality, and defined, they were defined themselves as indulgers in the flesh, and as ones that followed after their own lusts. Now, Again, my temptation is to go over every single one of these categories in detail. I'm just going to highlight two things from this list that I think is worth noting before we get into the major book uh, next week. Let's talk about the fact that they denied the Lordship of Jesus Christ. I don't have to tell you how important this issue is, because that's the crux of the Christian faith. Is He Lord of your life or not? 
This issue of him being Lord determines who stands as the authority figure in your life. Who calls the shots? Who's in control? And I love the fact that Peter, in chapter 1, verse 1, defines himself as an apostle, but for, puts one word before the apostleship, a bondservant. What's a, a bondservant as a slave? So he's in a, he listens to this, Peter's in the highest position of authority next to Jesus Christ possible in the church. He's an apostle. You can't get any higher spiritual standing than that. But what does he say? I'm actually a slave. So I have the, all this power and all this authority, hence why he can write the letter and tell the Christians there to listen to him. He mentions the apostleship because if he puts that title there, they have to listen because they know that he is a spokesperson for Jesus. But then he says, but I'm a slave to Jesus Christ. So he rules and he has power as a slave of Jesus Christ. So whatever Jesus Christ tells him to do and how he's to live and how he's to lead comes from him. So he's, he's actually um, submitted in, to a master. Well, you can see now the power of the false teacher's message telling you to deny the lordship. Because whenever there's a vacuum in authority and, and, and Jesus is not filling that vacuum, you're going to fill it yourself. And you will become Lord of your own life. You call your own shots. You're in control. It's all about having your rights met and not his. We have lots to say about that when we get into that sermon series on this section. Now, the message of the false teachers then was very seductive and attractive because it was basically the message was, it's all about you. And you can be connected to God, but still be in control of your own life. <laughs> so, let's deny Jesus and His Lordship. Secondly, one of the things I want to point out too is the last thing on the list, that they practiced and promoted immorality. See, they had a loose, loose living lifestyle that they promoted as a follower of Jesus. They were known themselves as being indulgers of the flesh and ones who followed after their own lusts. And Peter's main concern, of course, was not only that they were claiming the name of God and practicing immorality, but they were influencing others to follow in their footsteps. So they were promoting born-again Christians, promoting this idea that no matter how you live in response to Jesus Christ, it doesn't really matter. You're free to pursue the lifestyle you choose and be okay and be blessed by God. Now perhaps, perhaps it stemmed from their heretical beliefs in the second coming. If you don't believe Christ is coming back, and you don't believe he's coming back as a judge, then who cares how you live now? And one, I wonder, when we'll get into this later, I'm wondering in my first study if part of their, their uh, issue on promoting a loose living lifestyle was because they didn't fear, they, or they taught, you don't have to fear judgment. And so the Christians that they were trying to mislead fell for this teaching. But you can see the relevance today in the church, can't you? I mean, think of the direction some of the denominations have taken, such as the United Church in Canada, with where they've gone in this area of life. They would have bought right in to this teaching. How about not just at the denominational level, but with individual churches as well? I'm not saying all, but many have, from the leadership to the members, have fallen into this type of thinking. You can live in a moral lifestyle and still be connected to God. Because it's about grace. If you're saved by grace, who cares how you live? All too frequently you hear about pastors who are caught in sex scandals. Worship leaders. Uh, lay members. 
All, all on these sex scandals. Believing messages like the false teachers teach. Again, you can see how relevant Second Peter is. Let's move on to the second issue now within the church. And so we talked about the, the issue of false teachers. He also has one about the warning against apostasy. The warning against apostasy. What is apostasy? Well, apostasy is not this. And I'll give you a biblical definition in a second. So you understand it's not from me. Apostasy is not someone who's a non-believer who then promotes to everyone else they should be also be a non-believer. So it's not the Richard Dawkins kind of people or the Bill Nye kind of people who go and say, well, we're atheists, we don't believe in God, and we're telling you to believe. That's not apostasy. That's just an unbeliever promoting unbelieving truths. Apostasy is when a person who at one time had a genuine committed faith in Jesus Christ walks away from Jesus Christ and their faith altogether. They abandon him, they abandon the church, and so on. Now I'm going to show you where I get this definition from 2 Peter in a second. But it's an important issue you're going to have to work through in your lives if you haven't had to work through with it already. Because it leaves you scratching your head when this happens, doesn't it? Sorry about that. When we see someone who we think was a genuine Christian walk away from the faith, we're like, we start asking questions like, well, were they really a Christian after all? Were they faking it this whole time? Or was it legitimate? And what happens is it forces us to re-examine our pre-existing theological beliefs. Right? When you, when you hold a certain belief on, on uh, salvation and, and all these things, it really forces you to ask questions when you see these things happen. And it's one side of the camp, they're like, well, the, our, the answer is always simple. They were never a Christian to start with. That's always the answer on one side. The other side would say, I'm not sure, and, and, or yes, they were, and uh, we believe that apostasy is, a, is possible. Well, let me just clarify straight off the cuff and just tell you that Peter believes this actually can happen to a believer. Now turn with me to chapter 2, verse 20. Now, when you see the word they, that in context is referring to the false teachers. Because the whole context of chapter 2 is false teachers. Alright? So it says in verse 20, For if after they have escaped the defilements of the world by the knowledge of the Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, and they, the false teachers, are again entangled in them and overcome, the last state has become worse for them than the first. For it is better for them not to have known the way of righteousness than having known it, to turn away from the holy commandment handed on to them. It happened to them according to the true proverb, a dog referring to his vomit, and a sow after washing returns to wallowing in the mire. <clears throat> now that's a pretty strong statement, but the key two, free, two key uh, phrases are actually found in 20 and 21. In 20 he says, they, they, listen to the definition, for after they have escaped the defilements of the world. If you're a non-Christian, you haven't escaped the defilements of the world. You still belong to the world and the sin attached to it. Jesus comes to free you from the escaping of the defilements of the world. That's what he dies for. He dies to free you from that. So he says, Peter says, they have escaped the defilements of the world and the knowledge of the Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. But then he says, and then they are again entangled in them and are overcome. If you're a, if you're a non-Christian, you can't be again entangled because you already are entangled. <laughs> Understand? 
So he, the, the, Peter defines them as someone who have escaped the defilements of the world through Jesus Christ. That's so important. That's number, verse second as substantiation is found in 21. For it would have better for them not to have known the way of righteousness than, than having known it to turn away from the holy commandment handed down to them. You can't turn away from something in which, unless you belong to it. You have to have something to turn away from it. And again, that's a pretty strong statement on apostasy. We are going to get into how some theologians work around these passages. And, and I'm going to, I, know, I know me and my personality. I'm going to quote famous men in the, in the Christendom and tell you this is what they say. And this is how they observe the text. And I'm going to show you that's an impossibility when we get to those verses. And you will be convinced through the scriptures and not through me. If you're not convinced already, just from reading those briefly. So here's the thing, though. Peter's fear, the reason why Peter so brings this up, is because he believes it's possible for the Christians in that church to catch that same cold. He's not just so much worried about what the false teachers have done. He's worried about where the churches could be possibly headed if, they, if these false teachers infiltrate. And that's what he's worried about, and that's why he has to bring this up. This leads us to the next, next theme, the third theme in the book, which Peter gives a strong warning. Because you think, well, the teachers might be saying, well, you can live this kind of lifestyle, and uh, this immoral, immoral lifestyle and apostasy doesn't matter, it's no big deal to God. Third issue Peter brings up is that ungodly living will not go unpunished. Ungodly living will not go unpunished. The whole of chapter 2 is dedicated to this. And the way Peter gets this across, he uses rich Old Testament historical events to prove his point. He reminds the church of God's past dealings with individuals who thought like these false teachers, who rebelled against God and denied that he was a judge and scoffed at his coming judgment. The three historical accounts are found in chapter 2. Just look at starting at me, with me at verse 4. Verse 4. First, first, uh, the first that uh, received judgment, that probably didn't think they were going to be judged or didn't believe in God in that way, were the angels. For if God did not spare the angels when they sinned, but cast them into hell and committed them into pits of darkness, reserved for judgment. So that's one category. We're going to do, I'm likely going to do a sermon on each of these stories when we get to them so that you know the whole context of this stuff. But angels received judgment. Next group was found in verse 5, the story of Noah. We know that one. Um, Noah went around as a preacher of righteousness saying, repent, repent, repent. And none of them did. And so what happened? Noah's family was rescued and, and the rest were judged despite the warnings. Third is Sodom and Gomorrah. Sodom and Gomorrah, again, uh, were all destroyed in judgment and only one family was rescued and that was Lot's. Now I believe Peter's use of judgment is not a scare tactic to the Christian church. Okay? I think it was more of a motivating tool to help them, to help us stay committed to the Lord and not go off track. So it's not like me standing up here giving a hellfire and brimstone sermon and trying to scare the pants off of you. I'm just saying, listen guys, God is a judge. Remember the past. And this is just a motivating tool for you to remember what's going to happen in the future is to stay on track in your faith. And he does this uh, by reminding the church also about the future judgment that is going to come in Christ. It's found in chapter 2, verse 10. 
he speaks there about the, uh, sorry, 3 verse 10. It speaks about the coming of the day of the Lord, like a thief in the night. And he talks about the heavens and earth passing away in the roar of the elements. So I'm guessing, my understanding is that he's going to destroy the, the world by fire. The first world was destroyed by water in Noah. The second world is going to, probably going to be destroyed by some, some intense heat, most likely fire. And it's going to be burned. It says actually here in verse 10, it's going to be burned up. So that's the second judgment. Of course, these guys have scoffed and said, well, the Lord's not coming back to be judged. And Peter's saying, don't you remember the Old Testament stories? Of course he's coming back as judge. If he did it back then three times, he's going to do it again uh, as well in the future. But here's the key verse in verse 11. He says, since all these things are to be destroyed in this way, what sort of people ought you to be in holy conduct and godliness? In other words, he's saying, think church, what side of the fence do you want to be on when God comes back? Do you want to be on this side or this side? But again, he's, he's, he's saying there's a choice for you. You can go the way of the false teachers and, and like some of these Old Testament characters, or you can go the way that I'm teaching you through this letter. And you have to decide what sort of people do you want to be in holy conduct at the return of Jesus Christ? One thing we learn about here is that salvation then is not about a one-time event. It's not a one-time event. Some people say, well, you're a Christian? And they say, well, I, yeah, how do you know? Well, I prayed when I was 6, 12, 18. So? So? According to this, Peter's saying, you can still fall into apostasy. You can decide what sort of people you want to be when the Lord comes back. What we learn is that salvation is not a one-time event. It's about an ongoing relationship with the Lord Jesus Christ. It doesn't matter if we're baptized, we study the scriptures, we pray. They're important things if they're done for relational, on relational terms, but they're not the means of the entrance of the kingdom. Salvation is about a relationship with God over a long time event. No different than marriage. Someone says to me, how do you know you're married? I would never say, well, I had a ceremony once where I could put a ring on my finger and signed a book. That's the initiation of marriage, but that's not how you define a marriage. We know how we're married by the how we relate to one another. Right? That's key of the health of a marriage. Same with God. We have a one-time ceremony where we're forgiven of sin, and now we have to relate to Him, and He relates to us in particular relational obligations from there on forward. So again, we see how relevant Peter's message is for us today because he warns us about the tendency to treat sin lightly and suppose that an immoral lifestyle can be pursued without penalty. It's not a scare tactic. It's just to say, listen, this is, this is the reality of Christian, Christian living. And I, heard, I read some commentators and they all said this is one of the most like, hardest books to read in the Bible because it seems to come from a negative bent. Like, it's kind of like, it's always like, you know, you're going to get judged, you're going to get judged, you're going to get judged, and this type of thing. And, and again, but sometimes we do have to hear those messages. As a parent, you give your kids those messages. You love them like crazy, but sometimes you have to put the hammer down and say, listen, enough. If life, you've got to toe the line. You know, James's, like, Rempel's, like, Andreasen's, like, Verlitz's, we don't behave this way in our family. Like, we have, this is enough, and I'm the judge now. And that's what we do. And God does the same thing with us. It's not a negative message. It's a necessary message 
a lot of times. So Peter gives us instruction then to combat these temptations, to fall away and to deal with these issues. And the fourth category and the final category is this. We are to be diligent in our walk with Christ. Diligent. Whenever you look at a portion of scripture, um, if you look for recurrences in, in a letter or recurrences in a portion of scripture, like a paragraph or so, it often gives you a clue as to the context of what's being talked about. Peter calls us to be diligent, or, dilig- or be, yeah, diligent, four times in the letter in three chapters. Specifically, three times in terms of our diligence, and one time in terms of his own diligence. Now, the Greek word diligent, you, you don't even need the Greek to know what that means, but I'll give it to you anyway. It means to earnestly strive for, or to be bent upon something. To be bent upon it. All right? You know when you have that hankering for chips and you're on a, and you just have to have them. <laughs> That's the kind of diligence uh, we're asking uh, God's asking for us in terms of our commitments to Jesus Christ, right? So what's interesting about this and why it's so important is that Peter recognizes that even though our salvation is God's initiative, we can't be saved without grace. We can't be saved without Him going to the cross first. It's all about grace. It's His doing. We still have a role to play in terms of the fruitfulness and the success of our Christian walk with the Lord. And largely, it's largely up to us and our diligence to, as to what that relationship of salvation is going to look like. It's extremely important to understand this, considering what, the, what, what Peter writes. Uh, but, oh yeah, I'm ahead of myself. Just so you know, I'll show you quickly here. Uh, ch- chapter 1, verse 5. You'll notice the word diligence there. Chapter 1, verse 5. Also, chapter 1, verse 10, you see the word diligence. Chapter 1, verse 15, you'll see the word diligence. And one more, chapter 3, verse 14, you'll see the word diligence. Now listen to this now. Listen to what Peter writes in chapter 1, verse 2. He says, Grace and peace be multiplied to you in the knowledge of God and of Jesus our Lord, seeing that His divine power has granted to us everything pertaining to life and godliness through the true knowledge of Him who called us by His own glory and excellence. So on one side, we have everything we need to live a Christian life successfully. God has given, God has given us no shortage of tools to live this life out successfully. Through the power of His Spirit, He's given us everything we need to fight temptation, to exist in, in, in this world, to, have, to, to be successful with Him and others. So there's nothing lacking from God's giving to us. So, and I love uh, verse uh, 11. He says at the bottom there that Christ will abundantly... Uh, he says He supplies things to you there at the bottom of verse 11. Jesus supplies things to you. Now what's interesting is that uh, there's another supply in here. Another word supply, which is that which we need to supply back. Look at verse 5. Now for this very reason also applying... All diligence in your faith supply these characteristics. Moral excellence, knowledge, self-control, perseverance, godliness, brotherly kindness, and love. For if these qualities are yours and increasing, they render you neither useless nor unfruitful in the true knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. See, I love this because... We can't take this attitude, well, I have all the tools from Christ, so I'm good to go. 
yeah, you have all the tools, but you still have to, you still have to use the tools that God gave you. Right? It reminds me of just about uh, six months ago, I wanted to build lockers for the kids in the back where the laundry machine is so we could hang up their coats and put their boots away and all that type of stuff. Well, I remember like wanting to build these things, but I kind of had an excuse. I didn't have a table saw. I didn't have a table saw. So I'd been talking to Roger about this desire for a table saw, and one day he phones me and says, yeah, at my like, garage sale I found a table saw. So he's like, I'm going to buy it for you. I said, yeah, sure, I'd love that. So he bought it for me and um, brought it to the house, and I paid him back and whatever. At least I think I did. <laughs> but uh, here's, here's the thing. I had this grandiose plan to build these lockers, but I had an excuse. I didn't have a table saw. Well, now I had all the tools to build that, those lockers. The problem was they weren't going to build themselves just because I had all the tools. I wasn't going to show up the next morning and my lockers were magically built because the saw got off the floor, walked into my house, cut all the wood and put it all together for me. I still had to take the tools, learn how to use them and to apply them to make something that would be successful in our house for our family. I had to get to work with the tools that I was given. That's exactly the message of Peter. Be diligent in your walk with God. I mean, multiple things, multiple teachings, pulling you away from truth. But God's given you everything in His in divine power pertaining to life and godliness through the power of the Holy Spirit. But you have to be diligent and you have to supply these things in return. It's this whole conundrum in the Christian faith of the sovereignty of God and the free will of man. And they come nicely together in the letter of 2 Peter. <laughs> Finally, in the diligence, there's a role that the Word of God plays in the fight. Remember the message of the false teacher. Their word, their message, their way of understanding Christianity, they thought was right. It was their teachings, their understanding. They took Paul's scriptures and said, you can't trust Paul. The guy's a wacko. We have, the, we have a special knowledge on truth that only we know. Peter doesn't have that knowledge either. None of these guys know this. We know what it is to be a follower of Jesus. What does Peter do? He calls us back to the authority of Scripture. I'll show you three references to conclude the sermon. Look at me in chapter 1, verse 19. He says this, after the speaking of the transfiguration. So we have the prophetic word made more sure to which you do well to pay attention as to a lamp shining in a dark place. After the transfiguration, what did Peter conclude? After I witnessed what happened about Jesus, what happened to Jesus, the presence of Moses, the law, and Elijah, the prophets, and then what God declared about his son, I realized that everything spoken about him in prophecy in the Old Testament was true. So, he, so number one, Peter tells the church, as an eyewitness, I know the Old Testament and the, and the prophets were true. I know it. They're trustworthy. Really important, because heretical, destructive heresies they're bringing in, I'm guessing they'd say, don't believe the prophets. You don't have to trust the Old Testament. We, that's not, that's not, we have an upper hand on those teachings. Next one. Chapter 3, verse 1. This is now, beloved, the second letter I'm writing to you, which I'm stirring up your sincere mind by way of reminder that you should remember the words spoken beforehand by the holy prophets 
the commandment of the Lord and Savior and by your apostles. This verse was profound to me this week. It changed. I learned something new. You've heard people say this. Well, I, you know, I, 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 like a Jew would say, well, I believe the Old Testament prophets, but I don't believe anything Jesus says. Or in our culture, I believe the words of Jesus, but I don't believe the words of the apostles. Like, you can go anywhere. You know what Peter's saying? The prophets, the words of Jesus, and the apostles are all in the same playing field. They're all, there is no first, second, third medals. They're all got the gold medal. So what the prophets said is what Jesus, and Jesus' words, and what the apostles speak are all on equal authority and all in equal in power. Isn't that a great verse? They're all on the playing, same playing field. So he's saying this, you don't have to just, don't only remember the prophets, remember what Jesus said and remember what we've taught you. So important. And finally, in 3.16, he says, uh, he talks, talking about Paul, he says, as also in his letters, speaking in, in them of the, these things in which are some things that are hard to understand. And if, yeah, if you've ever read Romans or Galatians, yeah, they're hard to understand. Uh, which the untaught and the unstable distort as they do the rest of the scriptures to their own destruction. You therefore both... Oh yeah, so anyway, this is really important because he talks about Paul being on equal authority with the rest of the scriptures. He's saying that they distort Paul and the rest of the scriptures, but they're on equal playing field. So what it is really, is a, it's a progression. It's a progression of uh, like a pyramid progression from the prophets to now the Lord Jesus, the apostles, to now Paul. But they're all can be trusted. So he's saying, the, the writings you receive from Paul, don't distort those. Remember what he actually said. Don't listen to the false teachers' interpretations. They're on the same authority as Jesus and the, uh, and the other apostles. And he was an apostle, but he just came late, like later in time because he wasn't part of the original 12. But again, Peter, what's his tactic to call in the church back to combating the false teachers? Just remember, everything in this Bible is trustworthy. They didn't have the New Testament. They had some of Paul's writings. So we, they would have maybe had the letter of 1 Corinthians, I don't know. But what I'm saying is, you can see that the authority of the Word of God was being called upon to, to dictate how they lived out the Christian life, not what these false teachers were saying. Isn't that relevant for the church today? So I don't have any lessons for you. I'll just repeat some of the themes. So, so what we're going to learn? How we're going to learn how to recognize a false teacher? That is important. A woman, about four years ago, I won't tell you who she is. <laughs> some of you might know her. Came up to me and says, "Man, I'm excited to tell you about someone I discovered and listened to lately in a sermon series." Genuine Christian. I have no doubt about her salvation. I have no doubt about her commitments to Jesus Christ. She actually is a strong evangelist. Just, un, just lacks discipleship. She came up to me and said, I, my, my uh, family introduced me to a guy named Joel Olstein. I've been listening to him a lot lately. What do you think? And I said, I am so grateful that you told me that. I said, get him the hell out of your life, basically. Why? And we went down the past, went down the talk to her. She ditched him like that. She ditched him like that. Thankfully, she trusted my word over some of her family members' word. It's relevant. One other thing we're going to learn is uh, what, are, what are really salvation issues, right? Because in here, he talks about issues that are issues of apostasy. 
If you believe this, if you live this way, you won't be good with God. If you believe this and live this way, you will be good with God. We're going to really learn what are the key salvation issues. And we're going to learn, like, uh, what did the prophets and Jesus and the apostles truly care about in terms of entering into heaven? What was necessary for salvation? We're also going to learn about God's role in life versus our role in life. He supplies us with everything, but we have to be diligent in what we've been given. We have the tools. We've got to take them out of the tool shed and start building. And we're going to learn again about the importance of God's Word in the life of a believer. And these are just a few of the subjects. There's more to the book than this, but these are some of the fun things.